Hey, everybody. This is Michael Krause, and you're listening to the AWS Review Podcast. More people than ever are moving to the AWS cloud, but with over 200 services, it can be hard to navigate. In this show, we will simplify that for you by digging into everything you can do with the AWS cloud, providing practical use information, and helping you understand the strategies to apply in achieving your goals. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to AWS Review, a weekly look at what's happening at AWS and how it may change how you do business. I am your host, Michael Krause. I am the Chief Innovation Officer at Charter Solutions, where we help organizations change and innovate quickly by accelerating their acquisition and use of data. And I'm your co-host, John Affelter. I'm a lead technical architect on the AWS specialist team at Salesforce, where I work with potential customers, helping them envision the possibilities that AWS and Salesforce enables. Excellent. Welcome back, John. Yeah, welcome back. Happy, happy new year. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. This will be a fun year. Yeah, right. It's uh, It'll be 2022 for another month or so, but uh, <laughs> but, it, but yes, it's 2023. I'm excited. Um, a lot of, a lot of uh, great innovation going on right now. Definitely an exciting time to be alive. So. Absolutely. So to our listeners and viewers out there, welcome back. Uh, we've had a brief hiatus uh, through the month of December. Uh, dealing with a few things, including the holidays and a bout of COVID, but we are past that now and wrapping up to start releasing many different episodes. Uh, so today we are going to be reviewing some of the interesting data processing announcements that came out of reInvent 2022 and talk a little bit about how it might change our and your thinking on how you process data in AWS. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting updates that I feel are are really paradigm shifters. You know, especially if you're all in on AWS and and you're utilizing some of the the features that allow different services to link together as it is. Uh, I think a lot of these updates really really accelerate that. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Um, I guess you know to, to kick us off, Michael. Um, you know what are what are some of the the first ones that, that caught your eye as far as as updates, and, and maybe we'll start start with uh, some smaller updates and, and move into the the big stuff as we go. I guess. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about Amazon Redshift. Uh, there are actually a lot of different announcements around Amazon Redshift, but there were a couple that uh, I found particularly interesting. Uh, the first one is aligning around uh, AWS's kind of new modern data platform concept, where you know you've got data in all kinds of different sources. You've got transactional databases, analytic databases, data lakes, etc. And the idea is to ease the movement and access of data across all of those. So one of the things they announced for Redshift at reInvent was this concept of zero ETL integration with Amazon Aurora, um, specifically MySQL right now. And this is in preview. They haven't uh, released this uh, for general availability. Uh, but the idea is that 
as you make changes in Amazon Aurora tables, behind the scenes, it can stream that data directly into Redshift. So now you don't have to write a ETL code to go and extract it from uh, Aurora and then insert it into Redshift. It basically moves it automatically. That's, uh, you know, that is a, a theme that uh, I'm seeing quite a bit uh, across, you know, numerous uh, technology companies, but that ability to, to have that zero ETL integration, um, I mean, between that and all the virtualizations that are happening that we'll get into later as well, um, right. it, it really is just, it's making it a lot easier to get going and to just start working on stuff right away and, and getting around a lot of those headaches that used to really slowed a lot of projects down previously. Right. So, right. Um, you know, pri prior to this, if you wanted to do this, you had to, you know, go to glue, create a, a catalog entry pointing at the Aurora database, go and run a glue job that would pull that or use DataBrew, pull that and then push it into Redshift. And uh, it's, or write your own kind of, you know, Lambda that pushes it to Kinesis Firehose and into Redshift or something like that. But now it's just a, uh, you know, or at least with this preview version, it's a configuration change. Mm hmm you turn it on. You say, here's my Redshift cluster. Here are my credentials in Secrets Manager and go and start streaming these five tables as data comes in into Redshift. Yeah, just, you know, right away. And um, I guess maybe piggybacking off off that is, is that everything is starting to become integrated. So now they have the, the you know, the integration with Apache Spark Yep. Redshift. So, you know, that whole pipeline of what you would previously even do, um, you know, obviously you don't have to think about it with the configuration stuff now, but even, even if you did have that already set up, there's a lot of, you know, integrations that you don't even have to think about anymore. Yeah. And that's, that is, I'm just thinking about just the little things that you have to do to set that up or, or get some of that, that rolling as far as setting up, you know, let's think about data as a product and, and right. how you might gain or get insights from, you know, data that might be in a lot of different places. You can, you can move to that a lot quicker with maybe not even having to, to consult your data engineering team. You can just have a data scientist that can, that can go out and start so, doing this. So remember the data as a product concept for an announcement we've got coming up later, later on. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're right. You know, I mean, if you wanted like near real time today, you know, prior to uh, this zero ETL concept, you'd probably go with DMS, data migration service, right? Mm -hmm. And you would set something up to watch a table using change data capture and pull it in. Uh, I really have no idea what they're doing under the hood on this at this point in time. I'm wondering if they they're leveraging some of the stuff they've done with DMS and mm -hmm. built basically a, a serverless or on-demand DMS mechanism with a layer on top of it for configuring, um, you know, Aurora MySQL to uh, Redshift. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of they came out with Kinesis Firehose. Once Kinesis Firehose came out, I was working on a project we were using, or not Kinesis, they were, came out with Kinesis Data Streams. And I was yep. working on a project we had, had to get data in near real time into Redshift. So we had lambdas that were listening to Kinesis data streams, 
grabbing that data, writing it to S3, and then invoking a copy command on Redshift to get that in there, right? And then they come out with Firehose. And that basically does that for you, right? <laughs> so yep. it almost feels like they've taken and taken DMS and packaged it and wrapped it up and said, hey, now you can just configure for anything on Aurora going into Redshift. Yeah, that, you know, that, I, I think that's a, a good inference on, on that. And it also is, you know, Firehose used to go into S3, then to Redshift. And now Firehose, correct me if I'm wrong, you can just go right into to yeah, Redshift. Firehose, Kafka, uh, they, they, Redshift can now ingest streaming data through a, they use a materialized view concept that pulls it in with a view on top of it, uh, which allows them to access it much more quickly than going through the bounce to, bounce to S3 and then do a copy up into, uh, into Redshift. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, just, just kind of eliminating these little steps that you would have to take and... Um, I guess, you know, I'm looking at kind of our next update here, and it, it's kind of in the same vein, but um, a little more on the performance side, but, you know, having Amazon Athena for Apache Spark. And so, that's, that's an interesting, so that's an interesting melding there, you know? Yeah, so this is interesting because the Apache Spark for Redshift is about making it easier to access Redshift data from Apache Spark. So if you're running Spark on EMR or something like that, you know, they now have e uh, stronger integration to be able to access Redshift data. The Athena Spark uh, announcement is about running Spark on Athena. So today, if you uh, are running Spark, you would spin up an EMR cluster with Spark and then fire up a Jupyter Notebook. Or if you're using Glue, you'd create an interactive notebook on Glue. Uh, interactive job session, which basically fires up a Jupyter notebook, but behind the scenes, they're spinning up a um, a Spark cluster for you to run on. Mm -hmm. So this is actually through Athena, and what it does is it allows you to write PySpark code and run it in Athena. And what they're doing behind the scenes is they've basically developed uh, a serverless Spark implementation. That so when you put together something, you say run this, it when you say run it goes and fires up a basically it's written on, on top of the same containerization mechanism that they use for Lambdas. Uh, Firecracker, I think is the name of it. Mm -hmm. They're actually running Spark on that. And they have come up with a way to make it start in like 100 milliseconds. So no cold start issues and nope. then you're still serverless and it's basically, it seems like they're building the strategy around, hey, if you're building notebooks, we still want you to utilize Athena in a way and, and build in these SQL queries into your notebooks. And when you're thinking yep. about update a pipeline, let's keep you, keep you coming to Athena. Where right. you could well, just work in a totally separate environment. Yeah. And, and if you think about the idea of a, a data analyst who, or data scientist who is familiar with Python and familiar with Spark and is dealing with a lot of data, you know, the old way it'd be like I'd have to spin up this expensive cluster, then I'd mm -hmm. have to start my notebook and I'd be, you know, doing all that. Today they can go, you know, I want to go and try this other thing. So they just go into Athena, open up an Athena notebook. There's all their code, make their changes, run it, runs super fast. Um, 
you know, the, the spin up, spin down time is almost non-existent now relative to the old way. Um, so it makes it much more efficient to do from an exploratory standpoint. Yep. And, yeah. And that was always the thing of, of Athena too, is, is that, you know, you could get into a standpoint where if you have these known workloads or you have some, something uh, where you're not doing the ad hoc anymore, maybe it might not, it might not be performant or it might not be economical to do. So it's kind of like two paradigms fighting at the same time, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the ease of the sequel versus the optimization of a, of a spark. So, yeah. and, and that might uh, be developed in different places too. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. You know, so when I first was kind of looking into this, I, I made an assumption that they were, they were running kind of a hot spark, spark cluster and managing it behind the scenes and they were allocating you space on it to run your queries. Hmm. And uh, I was digging a little deeper, and I came across a podcast where they were talking to uh, the people who created this. And they were saying that one of the big challenges that they had was data security. So I go and I pull this data off of S3 into memory on a Spark cluster for my query, right? And then... Well, then I have to deal with cleanup and things like that. And if I'm running a number of queries, one right after the other, it's kind of hanging out there. And if it's a shared environment, what's the risk? Yep. So it turns out that they have gotten this to run so fast, or at least spin up, spin down so fast. Every time you run a query, it spins up a brand new container, loads your data, runs the query, and when it's done completing, when it completes the query, it completely terminates and tears down that container. So it doesn't even like try to leverage the 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 hot zone essentially. No, it just it 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 it, it literally trashes it as soon as it's done. So there's no footprint left. You know that's pretty incredible, and, and it reminds me of a previous show where we talked about all those updates of of all those different services that could spin up and spin down all, yep. so much quicker. It's cool seeing it kind of reflect through the product. Yep. Now. Yeah. And they, so what they have done is they found a, I think they found a third party tool that they've integrated and made this work. But basically what it allows you to do is take a running cluster or a running container and basically snapshot its runtime state and store that. So you basically are, when you, rather than spinning up a brand new carry container and initializing, you're actually restoring a running container uh, from a, 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 a certain state. So that you, you create this container, it's all loaded up, has no data or anything, it's just ready for you to supply a query to it. And then they take and snapshot it. So every time you run, they basically reconstitute that snapshot, run your query, and then tear it back down again. That's how they get the speed. Because they're not having to wait for, you know, Spark to initialize and do all of this stuff. They've let it all happen and just basically grabbed a snapshot of that container in, in situ as it was. Yep, yep. And it's all the all the rest of it is already re ready to go. Yeah. And, oh, and you, you know they're you know that they're going to be taking this and once they, you know, they prove it out, they're going to be oh, it's going to come over to Lambda. It's going to go to you know yes. you know serverless Kafka. It's going to you know going to go over to other things like serverless Aurora. <laughs> yeah, they're going to use the same concept to be able to say, you know, there's cold, there's warm and hot, and we can actually store the hot and, and skip all the other stuff. So imagine Java running on Lambda 
and being able to go and say, oh, hey, now we've got uh, we've got a fully initialized but uninvoked Java thing. Let's snapshot it right there. And now every time you call this Lambda, if we have to do a cold start, we're going to grab that. You're, it's like you're you're getting into another, you're like a meta layer of distrib- distributed computing here. It's pretty yep. incredible. You know, and, 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 you know, like everything else that AWS does, it, this just creates another opportunity for people like you and I to focus on solving business problems, bringing new ideas to market and things like that, and not focus on, oh, how do I, how do I put a new jack on the end of this network cable that broke so that I can plug it back into my router? <laughs> yep. Right? Yeah, it's it's and it's instantaneous and it's you're not thinking about it and it's obviously going to be optimized the best way that it can because that saves AWS money too. So yeah, you know the more optimized they can make it, the better it is in general. So yeah, I mean these are uh, we haven't even gotten to the the crazy stuff yet. So this is exciting. <laughs> So how about, you know, how about, uh, you know, going back to, to AWS Glue too, um, they have AWS Glue data quality in preview. Yeah. Um, and with the more data formats that Glue can utilize, which which tells me that they're trying to, to keep bringing in other data sources. When I see like Delta Lake, you know, I, I yep. think of, of, you know, them taking back over really. Yeah. And, yeah, Delta Lake, uh, Apache Hootie, uh, Apache Iceberg. These are now native data formats that are supported by Glue. Um, the data quality piece is interesting because now they're going to be pulling into Glue much more uh, data quality uh, analysis tooling, make it available. Um, they have some of that available in LakeFormation and, and DataBrew. Um, and again, I'm speculating here. I'm guessing that the, the data quality stuff that they're bringing into Glue comes, uh, you know, leans on some of the data profiling stuff that they've built into mm-hmm. DataBrew and things like that. Um, plus the, you know, the, the ML analysis that exists around, you know, missing data, uh, yeah. finding missing data, finding, um, you know, repeats, uh, finding stuff that statistically doesn't match, uh, things like that, and being able to raise that up. Uh, inside Glue, so that as you're running your Glue jobs and doing various things, uh, you can track and manage and do exception handling around uh, poor quality uh, data. Yeah, and and just you know, it it's a part of the the process too, and you can yep. have it visualized and all the other visualization tools that Glue helps with uh, visualizing the process. I think that's uh, you know that that's going to be a heavily used uh, tool in the future. And yeah. uh, where it's kind of, you you know, it's being done, it's just being done in, in different silos, sort of. So, um, yeah, and I think I think something interesting here, um, which, you know, traditional data quality tools, they'll they'll do like data profiling. They'll tell you, you know, hey, this this table is 100. You know, everything's you this work column is everything's unique or mm-hmm. this is the amount of stuff. And then some of them are getting into some uh fuzzy logic ML type things for doing things like duplicate identification and stuff like that. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things they're doing with, with glue data quality, uh, forgive me here, is that they are also starting to provide recommendations for quality rules. Mm-hmm. 
So rather than you having to investigate and say, oh, okay, that, that looks to be a problem, I better write a rule around that. They will go and analyze your data and say, hey, you might want to add rules around this, this, and this. Yep. And that, that is, uh, that's going to be a huge value add, you know, on all levels uh, from the enterprise all the way to startups, obviously. But yep. I think that if you can incorporate that with all the other advances that are, are coming around, you know, um, like the co-pilot stuff, like some of the, some of the things, some of the, uh, the, the generative AI, essentially. Yep, yep. And, and have that be being improved with, you know, human feedback loops. I mean, we're going to get a crazy, we're going to get a very crazy time here where we yes. are like this hive mind of being able to provide good coding practices out to the masses. It's, it's yeah, going to be crazy. The scary part is when, when rather than human feedback loops, we start getting AI feedback loops. Yep. Chat GPT talks to Chat GPT. <laughs> yep. And, and, or, you know, Chat GPT, uh, that with this expertise talks to this one with this expertise. And then they, uh, you know, combine. And, and that's really, I think that's where things are, we're seeing that happen on a human level too, right? We yeah. see different experts that are, are really good at this thing being able now to communicate with data with other people that might've called it like a different way or a different domain or you yep. just see it even in the evolution of data models. So um, I think that is uh, I, yeah, we're like I said before, we're an exciting time to be alive right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, granted it's, it, things are getting spooky, right. As Albert yeah. Einstein would say. So, um, you know, I guess that kind of brings to the next point and probably something uh that I need to do myself is AWS clean room. So, yeah, so you know what? I, I, I think, think, you know, that all kind of comes in together, right? Is like, yeah. So, so here, I, I think I want to rearrange this. You know, when we, yeah, put yeah. The, when we put the outline together, I, I put that first. Let's talk about Amazon data zone first, just because I think yeah, 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 we absolutely. built off that a little bit better. Um, And so one of the gaps that, you know, has been around in the whole kind of data uh, tooling with Amazon is around governance. And, you know, they've had some things, right? They came out with Glue Catalog, which allowed us to, uh, <clears throat> you know, track metadata and track information about the tables. Uh, they came out with tools like uh, um, Data Lake Formation, which allowed us to provide uh, a, a number of things, including better security on our data lakes and stuff like that and govern access controls. Uh, so what DataZone does is it brings another set of tooling in that I'm going to go back to your data product you know, statement earlier, John. It basically allows you internally to create data products that you can then uh, disseminate and share internally in your organization and potentially across organizations that you have trust relationships with. Okay. So the way the way it kind of works is, you know, on, on one side of the world, you've got your kind of data management team, if you will. Uh, you've got all your data, you've your got Redshift, you've got uh, a data lake, you've got various things, you've got your glue catalog, and you've got people who want to access that data and play with it, right? 
Um, so they can go in and they can make requests and you can actually create a package of data. Um, and it's, I don't know all the under the under the hoods. And for people who are interested, there is most likely a YouTube video from AWS reInvent where they did a deep dive on this that I haven't seen yet. Um, so go check that out on, on their YouTube channel. But the 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 packaging of this, they then make it available in a portal and consumers, you know, people in your finance department, people in marketing, you know, a, a close trusted partner uh, can go into this portal and request access to it. And it then makes it available to them. So DataZone has its own cataloging system. Uh, you can create projects within there that people can then collaborate around that data on. Um, so you basically have this now ability to create, and again, this is in preview, uh, to create data product representations mm -hmm. for different audiences, right? Um, and and make those available, and then and then continue to manage them, right? So when the projects add, when you're adding people to work on this project, you just add them into that project in the portal, and now they have access to the same data sets. Um, when the project's over, you can shut it down. Uh, if something happens, you can you know the people on the data side can revoke the stuff. Um, so it, it gives a lot of of kind of capability of exposing these data sets as product sets. Yeah, and you know, again, too, just having the consistency around how you're able to deploy data as a product, or an insight, yep. or a gathering of insights, or a package of of multiple files, or, or anything, and that is that is something that will shift entire companies and the way they even make money, how they track budgets, how. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking the budget tracking and and being able to utilize data products and and you know really you know because data science teams it's a very ambiguous life as a data scientist yeah. right and and now you can get to the point where you're really being able to judge data scientists on their ability to create products that that moves the bottom line so. Right, it's exciting and scary, I guess, for those those PhDs out there. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and and it it impacts the, the entire organization. You know, you mentioned data scientists, but it could be other people in the organization. It could be, uh, gee, we've got a project to go do. Determine, uh, can we improve the efficiency of our um, of our of our manufacturing operation? Right. Yep. And we can then pull together a data set, and and. And what's key here is we're not we're not like creating a copy of the data and putting over there, and now we have to maintain another copy. What you're really doing is kind of saying, well, as part of this data set, they need access to this table in Redshift. They need access to this table uh, in the data lake and, and you know, these different things. <clears throat> but what you're doing is composing almost kind of like virtualizing yeah. the stuff and then presenting it as a single set of information for them to work with. Um, you know, so, you know, the, the self-service analytics buzzword has been around for a long time. And, you know, some people are way behind it. They're well behind it. Some people poo-poo it a little bit. But the reality is the self-service concept around the use of data is critical to scalability and organizations really being able to leverage that data for competitive differentiation. Uh, yep. Because if the if the analysis work is only done by data scientists or only done by data engineers and things like that, um, you have a bottleneck. You can yes. only do so much, right? But 
a good, solid marketing person who understands marketing data and understands all of that stuff can take marketing data and do campaign analysis. You know, how effective are my campaigns and things like that if they have the data, the right data available to them. You know, so this is another step in democratizing data, making it available in an easy-to-use format, uh, minimizing the amount of maintenance that needs to happen, still maintaining compliance and access control um, governance around it. Um, yeah, so this is this is really cool. It, well, what it does in my mind, it makes the juice worth the squeeze. Where it's like <laughs> before, you'd have to go to this team or that team, wait for that approval, wait for this, yep. wait for that. So all of these just random ideas, you know that that make companies really a differentiator that maybe just come out of the ether somewhere. You yep. might have those ideas, and you just already know that you it's not even possible. So don't even try. Right. Right. Now it makes all that, you know, it makes the exploratory a lot, you know, there's a lot less need for exploratory because you have the ability to just spin stuff up directly for the problems that you want to. So. Right, right. Well, and, and now you could also, I mean, you can put the expo- exploration in the hands of more people. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because they yeah. know what they're looking at. They know how to find it. And, you know, exactly. and it's, and also it's formulated in a way that they understand. I, I think that that's a big thing, too, is 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 just the domain specificity that you can have it's basically like you're solving the data mesh problem right there right and you can form fit it to your to your enterprise so i I think that's pretty cool well this this concept of a data zone project i find really interesting because i'm imagining no idea if it's going to go there or not i'm imagining new metrics starting to come out around this so for example yeah. Uh, today, if you have a data lake, uh, even on AWS, and you grant that access to that data lake to a whole bunch of people, when they when data lakes first came out, there was really no way of determining who was who was contributing what cost to the data lake. From yeah, that's standpoint. yeah, exactly. Right? Now you've got some things where you can at least create, uh, you know, like Athena work groups and apply quotas to them to minimize all that stuff. And you can try to, um, you know, go through uh, logs and cloud trail and stuff like that to find out, all right, who's doing what and, and, and try to parse that apart. I can imagine on the data zone projects, I can imagine cost analysis being tied directly to those. I, you know, like so, I said, so, I oh, think that's project, probably the biggest thing, yeah, right? This project <laughs> is costing us this and this project is, and we're getting no value out of this project. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of a it's a catch twenty two on one side you know yep. teams that are are good you know they're going to be able to show how good they are and then the teams that you know, are flying are you know just it's going to be interesting and also you got to think if you're going to a team and it's not what you do but you're having to spend all your time yep you know making access for somebody else or doing this for somebody that was that was an unseen thing before and now yep. everything. It's true attribution, and and that's what I I think is uh, pretty powerful. Uh, you know, so so now might be a good time to segue to clean rooms. You're right. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, clean clean rooms. It's like you know, it, it can you have a place where you're not worrying about you know moving data or having the raw data, and and that's. It's something I was actually talking with a colleague today about it, it, it with synthetic data, 
Yep. But also, you know, just being able to do that without the raw data and being able to mess around. But I don't know enough about clean rooms. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more. So you know, so so just a, you know, we'll keep clean rooms pretty high level because it's a, I, it's a really cool concept. Um, it's a niche concept as well. It's a it's needed, but not every organization will use it. Um, so what clean rooms do is. Let's so, for example, let's see, say you are a large healthcare provider organization, mm-hmm. right? And I'm a company who's doing research and trying to develop uh, a new mechanism around improving patient outcomes. Yep. Okay. I want access to your data. I want to collaborate with you. I want access to your data about your patients, Right. And I want to provide you access to the results of what I'm doing so that you can tell, tell me the value of that to you as a provider. Yep. So are you going to take and regularly package up your data and ship it over to me? Yeah. Not, yeah. Juice is not worth the squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you know, if, if we have all of the, you know, agreements in place <laughs> and, and everything is contractually very tight, and the lawyers have, you know, beaten their chests over and over again about this. Yes, then I will. So what, what clean rooms allows you to do is create a clean room, a safe zone where you can share information between your organization and another organization while keeping tight control on your information and hiding the original raw data. You know, so I can, you know, so again, similar to the data zone where we're creating a data product, you're kind of creating a data product. Um, You're setting constraints around usage, what they can get out of it, what they can do, how they can analyze it, what they can see, you know, so it's a whole kind of, you know, you go into this room and you then do your work and then you leave. So, Kind of, kind of thinks, think about, you know, like the, the super secret computer rooms that aren't connected to the internet. And if you want to do some work, you have to go into that room through security, and then you can go in there and you can work on the computer that's in there and do stuff. And then when you leave, they search you to make sure you don't have any data. Yep. <laughs> so that's effectively what, this, what these clean rooms are doing, is they're providing that kind of isolated, secure environment around the data where we can get in there and collaborate together but we can't take each other's data out and we can minimize, we can control what, what each other can see of our data. Yeah. Yep. And that's the thing too, is, is that you're only, you only want to go into that room to get that insight anyway. So just yep. all I need is that one insight. I don't need everything else connected to it. Right. So that's right. That, so you I can mean, see why I say that's a little bit of a, it's a, it's a niche solution. Not every listener or, or, or viewer out there are going to be, oh, yeah, we need clean rooms. But there are definitely uh, a, quite a number of scenarios in, in finance, in um, healthcare, uh, in government work, and yep. things like that, where this does become an important enabler uh, as we lean more and more on processing and analyzing data to be able to drive how we do things. Yeah, no, I, I, what I think of is, is large companies that do a couple of different things or like a a pharma company that does research and clinical studies and patient care. And that's all connected with the same information that they need. So, right. I, I, you know, just going through a, 
any research company that has to go from research to you know something where they're serving a customer. That's also another thing. Yep, absolutely. So that's uh, I think that's pretty much the list we've got for today. Yeah, I think you know quite a list, a lot of paradigm shifters. I'm really excited to see. Um, you know, as things start to come out of preview, how it how it's yep. impacting um, customers on an enterprise level. I, I think there's yeah, there's a lot it's, here. It's it's you know a lot of this is in preview, uh, but it's good for people to know what's coming down the line and directionally where things are going, so that um, you know as we are looking at the decisions we're making today, be able to set ourselves up to be adaptable take advantage of the things that are coming. Yep. And you so know, yeah, but we need to be adaptable. Yeah. Cause really it's, you got to start looking at it. it. It's not just a technical thing here. These are paradigm shifters on a governance and a people level too. And, yep. and that's why it's good to get, get ahead of this here. Um, Cause it solves a lot of problems, but again, as you solve problems, you create them too, when you need to transition. So yeah, it's good, exactly. it's good to see it ahead of time. Exactly. All right. To everybody out there listening or watching today, um, that's what we've got for you. I uh, hope you liked it. hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow us there. And then, uh, you know, or if you're listening on the podcast, feel free to share it with uh, your friends and family and let them know about it. And join us uh, next time for another set of interesting AWS-related topics. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the AWS Review Podcast. If you are not currently a subscriber, I strongly recommend it. It's free, and you'll get notified when new episodes come out. AWS Review is also available in video format. You can check it out at www michaelkrause.com slash AWS review. That's www.michaelkrouze.com slash AWS dash review. Until next time, continue being curious.